You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Pulse Secure patches its VPN, and CISA, for one, thinks you ought to apply those fixes. Apple has also patched two zero days in its WebKit engine. Scripps Health recovers from what's said to be a ransomware attack. Researchers describe Genesis, a criminal market for digital fingerprints. Ben Yellen describes a grand jury subpoena for signal user data. Our guest is Ryan Weeks from Dato on the need for cyber resilience in the MSP community. And Japan works on cybersecurity for this summer's upcoming Olympic Games. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. May the 4th be with you. Pulse Secure yesterday issued patches to close vulnerabilities in its widely used VPN that have been undergoing active exploitation by an advanced persistent threat group. CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, has warned that the VPN has been under attack since at least June of last year, and it updated its alert yesterday to recommend that organizations using Avanti Pulse Connect Secure appliances to immediately run the Pulse Secure Connect Integrity tool, update to the latest software version, and investigate for malicious activity. The most serious of the vulnerabilities addressed yesterday was CVE 2021-22893, a use-after-free issue in Pulse Connect Secure that could allow a remote unauthenticated attacker to execute arbitrary code via licensed server web services. The other three vulnerabilities addressed, the first two rated critical, the third rated high in severity, included a buffer overflow in Pulse Connect Secure Collaboration Suite, that could enable remote authenticated users to execute arbitrary code as the root user via a maliciously crafted meeting room. A command injection flaw in Pulse Connect Secure by which remote authenticated users could perform remote code execution via Windows file resource profiles. And finally, a vulnerability enabling multiple unrestricted uploads in Pulse Connect Secure by which an authenticated administrator could perform a file write via maliciously crafted archive uploads in the administrator web interface. So, patch. While CISA especially has its eye on U.S. federal civilian agencies, 
Its advice is surely of immediate value to any organization that runs the Pulse Secure VPN. FireEye believes some of the exploitation may be connected with the Chinese government. The security firm's Mandiant unit reported on April 20th that two groups, which it tracks as UNC-2630 and UNC-2717, were active against, respectively, companies in the U.S. defense industrial base and government agencies in a wide range of countries. The researchers said at the time that UNC-2630 targeted U.S. DIB companies with, and here they name specific malware packages, Slow Pulse, Radial Pulse, Thin Blood, Atrium, Pacemaker, Slight Pulse, and Pulse Check as early as August 2020 until March 2021. Mandiant added, We suspect UNC-2630 operates on behalf of the Chinese government and may have ties to APT-5. Among its activities was an active program of harvesting credentials from compromised VPNs. On the second group, the researchers said that UNC-2717 targeted global government agencies between October 2020 and March 2021 using Hard Pulse, Quiet Pulse, and Pulse Jump. They did not have enough evidence to offer any attribution to a government sponsor or an affiliated APT. Apple patched yesterday, fixing two iOS zero days that are being actively exploited in the wild. Bleeping Computer explains that the issues arise in the WebKit browser rendering engine used in iOS, Apple Mail, and the App Store. iPhones, iPads, iPods, macOS, and Apple Watches have all come under attack. Scripps Health, which operates hospitals and outpatient clinics in Southern California, is recovering from an information technology security incident that began affecting its system Saturday. Scripps says it suspended user access to IT systems and reverted to backups, but that it continues to deliver care safely and effectively. Solutions Review records a range of industry speculation that the incident was a ransomware attack. Scripps itself hasn't reported it as ransomware, but the San Diego Union-Tribune says it's obtained an internal memo indicating that ransomware was, in fact, the cause. The paper reports that the medical system's operations are still suffering disruption. Digital Shadows today published an interesting report on Genesis Market, an underground souk that caters to the criminal-to-criminal trade. The company's researchers describe Genesis as a fully-gated, invitation-only, English-language automated vending cart site focused on the sale of digital fingerprints relating to a victim user's computer, browser, and accounts on websites and services. It's been in business since 2017. Genesis is an aggregator. It trades such information about victims' accounts as the commonplace and desirable username and password, but it adds other identifiers like browser cookies, IP addresses, user agent strings, and various operating system details. The hoods used to have to find these one by one, but Genesis offers a one-stop shop. Genesis has been more enduring than most of its competing markets. It seems to have achieved its position in the criminal market by attracting criminal influencers as early adopters and to have largely lived up to the high reputation word of mouth lent it. A report from Threat Fabric assesses 2020 as a banner year for Android banking trojans. Increased usage coincided with a rise in the sophistication of the criminal-to-criminal market that did much to commoditize this form of cybercrime. 
The record notes that cryptocurrency apps received a particularly high share of criminal attention last year. The Cyber Threat Alliance has updated its assessment of the cyber threat to this summer's Olympic Games in Tokyo. They expect the ransomware activity burgeoning worldwide to present some degree of threat, and they expect that Russian, Chinese, and North Korean actors will take advantage of such opportunities as the Games may present for espionage and influence operations. Japanese authorities have been preparing for the Olympics' cybersecurity for several years now. A note on scheduling, the Games are referred to as the 2020 Games because they were originally scheduled for last summer, but were pushed back to this July and August by the pandemic. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Managed service providers know that one of their top business priorities is reliability uptime. A ransomware attack, for instance, can take down not only the MSP, but all of their clients as well, and that can be a quick path to financial ruin. Cyber resilience is a widely used term, and today I'm joined by Ryan Weeks, CISO at MSP software and services provider Datto, for his insights on the criticality of cyber resilience for SMBs and MSPs. Yeah, for cyber resilience, what we've what we've been doing is really trying to educate um, MSPs and, and through MSPs, SMBs, that really they're living in a world where, you know, you can't just assume that you're going to be able to prevent a bad outcome from occurring. You have to assume that a bad outcome is going to occur. And, you know, those in security circles know we call that the assumed breach mentality. And um, in that mentality, we need to not, just to be focused on trying to implement technologies and processes to 
to kind of reduce the likelihood of a bad outcome, but also invest in the the abilities to detect, respond, and recover uh, when those bad outcomes do occur. And and to us, that ability to like kind of build a cybersecurity program that protects and detects threats, and then having really robust capability in response and recovery is uh, you know being incident response and business continuity. That is really what cyber resilience is, and so it's you know really that preparation for um, you know both being prepared for the bad thing to happen to try to prevent it, but also knowing how you're going to respond in order to minimize damage when the bad thing does happen. So, from a practical point of view, what does that look like? I mean, what what's the spectrum of options that organizations have to to uh, prepare themselves in a resilient kind of way? Yeah, it's a great question, right? People are like, okay, great. So now that I kind of understand what cyber resilience is, how do I achieve it? And so again, that's that's been a focus of our education for MSPs is, is really helping them lay out a pathway. And so we have been seeing a lot of MSPs focus on CIS uh, security controls, so specifically implementation group one as a means to kind of improve their security programs and then also you know, drive that into their small and medium-sized businesses that they support as well. Um, the challenge with that is um, CIS can be a little focused on technology-centric controls. And when you actually kind of map them out, they're very heavy in um, identify, protect, and detect capabilities. And for real true cyber resilience, you need a balance of people, process, and technology, and you really need capabilities kind of you know, right of boom, um, which is your detect, respond, and recover um, as well. So CIS is a great place to get started, but what we're really advocating for MSPs to do is, is follow a framework, you know, whether it's kind of the, the NIST cybersecurity framework, which follows those five functional areas and has kind of an appreciation for people, process, and technology as well, or even something that builds on top of it, like the, the cyber defense matrix. Um, we're seeing that that is, is really going to help um, you know, MSPs and SMBs be in a position where uh, they're, you know, they're more able to recover from, from bad outcomes, which for them primarily means ransomware. That's Ryan Weeks from Datto. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, I caught my eye, uh, the folks over at uh, the Signal app uh, posted a blog post. Uh, it's titled, Grand Jury Subpoena for Signal User Data, Central District of California. 
Uh, it's a bit of, um, I guess, a, a bit of tongue-in-cheek in their approach here, but uh, there's some interesting privacy stuff that they're focusing on. Can you give us a rundown of what's going on here, Ben? Yeah, I mean, the tongue-in-cheek uh, stuff is is very funny. The, the hook for this article is it's 2021 now. It's been five years since 2016. You know, remember Brexit, remember Trump, remember Justin Bieber uh, at number one on the charts. But that's a hook for... <laughs> Signal uh, receiving yet another grand jury subpoena asking for identifying information about their users. Signal mm-hmm. does not have any identifying information about their users. That's the whole point. It is an end-to-end encrypted uh, application. Um, right. So things that you can retrieve uh, that a you know a grand jury subpoena could obtain from other companies that don't have end-to-end encryption, you can't get uh, from Signal. So the subpoena. Uh, that they're referencing here and which is posted uh, as part of this blog post asks for addresses, you know, uh, the transcript of correspondence over the application and a name associated with an account. Uh, Signal does not have that information. It cannot provide it. All they have is, you know, very limited, basically the date that you started your account and that's not going to tell them much. And when Uh, you last connected to the Signal service, that's all. Right, you know that actually might be relevant in a limited number of limited number of cases, but it's really mm-hmm. not much information. This is going to be a really nice selling point for Signal, as you know they try to advertise the benefits of end-to-end encryption by saying, "Here's an actual situation where a district court in California sent us a request for information, but because we don't have access to that information, we can't send it to them. Thus, your privacy is protected." So I can completely understand why Signal would have a blog post about this and would put up the grand jury uh, subpoena. Um, there is sort of yeah. one interesting element uh, that that's in the subpoena here. They the uh, court is asking for information sufficient to show interstate wiring, um, which is supposed to be a mechanism to show a jurisdictional theory, as they call it, that signal messages cross state lines. And perhaps that's going to be relevant uh, in this case for the communications Hmm. that they're seeking. This is something that's new. Apparently, it wasn't in the last grand jury subpoena that they received five years ago. And they said it feels like something out of a Law & Order episode from the (laughs) mid-90s when the internet, in quotations, was still young and people people didn't really understand uh, how it worked. But... That's not really something that they didn't really talk about how they're going to respond to that aspect of it. I think they're tongue in cheek about it because it, it kind of points to an outdated understanding of how the internet works, mm-hmm. um, and that it almost certainly doesn't matter in uh, adjudicating the case. Um, so yeah, they were represented by good ACLU lawyers here, um, and of course they're going to want to publicize every chance they can of actual situations where they're getting requests for personal information, and because of how stringent their end-to-end encryption is, they are unable to hand over that information. Right. A couple questions here. Um, Is it possible that this is just simply that the DOJ sent out something that's fairly boilerplate, and and, and that's why it it just sort of doesn't really align with how things work at, at Signal? Yes, I think yeah. that's exactly what happened. <laughs> okay. Is that like, just, this is the form we give to tech companies to give us information. Right. And okay. they're not really aligning it for end-to-end encrypted applications. I you know, see. it's like you might as well, you know, shoot your shot, right? There's no harm in requesting it. Signal yeah. is just going to come back and say, we don't have it. 
Yeah. The other thing uh, that caught my eye here in the subpoena is it says, uh, because this subpoena relates to an ongoing criminal investigation, you are asked not to disclose the existence or nature of the subpoena. Such disclosure could obstruct and impede the ongoing investigations and interfere with the enforcement of the law. If you nonetheless plan to disclose the existence or nature of the subpoena, please contact the special agent identified above first. Can you unpack that for me from a legal point of view? Like, is that just is that just sort of please, please uh, do us a favor? Or is there any, you know, legal backing behind that paragraph? Uh, so it depends on the circumstances. In most grand jury subpoenas, there isn't much of a legal threat for people who disclose information. There are a couple of exceptions. One of them is national security letters. So if mm. this is information related to homeland security or national security information, there's actually a legally enforceable gag order that comes with those uh, s- subpoenas. And that's what national mm. security letters are, administrative subpoenas. And in that circumstance, you could face criminal penalties uh, for divulging the contents of that subpoena. These uh, People have been fighting against these gag orders for years um, with good reason. I mean, it's it's... It puts people, you know, the companies and individuals who receive these requests in a very difficult situation. And prior to some reforms that have been passed over the past several years, you couldn't even discuss it with an attorney lest you be violating uh, that gag order. Fortunately, in in most circumstances now, at least um, the uh, government has given people who've received these gag orders a chance to challenge them in court. And they give them instructions on exactly, you know, what kind of information they have to submit. And mm-hmm. they've allowed exceptions uh, for who those individuals can talk to. And one of those is you, you can run this by your attorney as long as mm. you keep it confidential. Mm. Uh, so this does appear to be a Homeland Security investigation. I'm wondering if this was issued as um, under that National Security Letter Authority or uh, some other authority. But it does right. generally when we're talking about national security, homeland security cases, they do have a le- they do have a legally enforceable gag order. Yeah, I wonder if uh, the folks from Signal or or their their attorneys uh, from the ACLU uh, contacted the special agent before they published this or not. I'm going to guess not. I'm going to guess not. Yeah, I mean they also <laughs> one selling point of these companies is like we like to thumb it in the nose of overreaching government. You know, government agents, and that just proves how much we care about protecting your privacy. Right, uh, right. This is one sure. way of showing it. Yeah, yeah. A bit of swagger here as well, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. that's the cyberwire for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com the cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in maryland out of the startup studios of data tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies our amazing cyberwire team is elliot peltzman Guru prakash kelsey bond tim nodar joe kerrigan carol terrio ben yellen nick Vilecki, gina johnson bennett moe chris russell john petrick jennifer ivan rick howard peter kilpie I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 